Well, good morning, Summit family, and happy New Year's to you. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I don't know where you stand uh, convictionally on this whole uh, idea of resolutions. Maybe your resolution is to not have any resolutions. Uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, uh, as we often do, just kind of talking about what he's believing God for for the next year, and that turned into resolutions. And he goes, man, I got one resolution this year. I said, what is it? He says, my resolution is to help all my close friends gain at least 10 pounds so I'll feel better about myself. So um, I hope that's not, hope that's not your, your resolution. No matter where you may be on the resolution continuum, my prayer for our time of study around God's word for the next few moments that we have is that the sentiments that's going to be laid out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 would be something that we resolve to be about, not just in 2022, but for the balance of our days. Pick me up in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. He says these words. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So here's that word again, run that you may obtain it. Every athlete, verse 25, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Will you pray with me one more time? God, as we begin and launch out on this new year, this first Sunday of 2022, we need to hear from you. God, you've just heard from us in worship. We have expressed your worthiness, your supremacy, your sufficiency. We have made declarations like being content no matter what our circumstances may be. Truth anchored right out of your word, Philippians 4 to be exact. God, these, your people, do not need to hear from a middle-aged man. They need to hear from an eternal God. So would you speak to us? Bless my feeble attempts at articulation. And would you encourage us, challenge us, convict us, change us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Some of you all may, um, maybe one of the things you're aspiring to do this year is maybe you want to read a little bit more. Let me, um, let me add what I would simply call a beach read. There's nothing necessarily profound or theological about it. It's just a wonderful kind of a page turner. It's a book written by a guy named Stephen Ambrose. Uh, it's called Nothing Like It in the World. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a true story on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, what many people have called the greatest engineering feat of the 19th century. As you can imagine, there was a lot of excitement uh, that was just looming in the air as this project is getting started. It's about to take off. And, and because of all of this excitement, someone had the wonderful idea of why don't we just kind of do a nailing of the first spike ceremony to just get this thing kicked off. It kind of be our equivalent of a ribbon cutting ceremony. There's this huge project we're excited about. It's got the potential to 
really changed the game on multiple levels here in our nation. So let's, let's just get it started with the nailing of the first spike. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful idea, but the problem is one of the owners of this project, a guy by the name of Collis Huntington, he got wind of this, um, this ceremony they wanted to do, and he didn't like it. Immediately, he fired off a telegram, and he said these words. Will you look at them with me? Collis wrote, if you want to jubilate over driving the first spike, go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there look too ugly. We may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know about it as we can. Anybody, hear it now, can drive the first spike. But there are many months of labor and unrest between the first and last spike. In essence, what Collis Huntington is saying is a truism to life. Starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. Anybody can start off well on the throes of an emotional high or a new experience. I mean, let's just face it. I was the best husband on the honeymoon. finishing well that's something altogether and this is an important concept as we start the new year I don't want you to feel like I'm I'm making too much of this because my Bible does not record God saying of you and I when we stand in his presence well start but hopefully he'll say of you and I well done that blesses me because what matters most to God is not how well or how poor we start. It's how we finish. Boy, if I was in a chocolate church, cue the Hammond B3 organ, boy, we'd be going crazy right now. There's a guy in church history, recent church history, I really feel like you should get to know. Many of you maybe have already been acquainted with him. Maybe his teachings and writings have shaped your life. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. A guy had a profound influence on my life from afar, a guy by the name of Dr. Howard Hendricks. He was a famous professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for, for decades. If ever you get an opportunity to listen to anything he teaches on or read anything he wrote, you'll be profoundly enriched. He wanted to do a, a study in, in the Bible on what I would call last spike Christians, those who finished well and who didn't. Now, he did this study in a pre-Google era, so his study was a lot more cumbersome. He just simply began in Genesis and read through Revelation, and every time he saw a person's name mentioned in the Bible, he just kind of jotted it down. And what he discovered at the end of his reading, that there are, there are over well, well over 3,000 people mentioned in the Bible. He then backtracked and realized of these 3,000 plus individuals mentioned in the Bible, there was only enough sufficient information on about 100 of the 3,000 plus that would allow him to determine who finished well and who didn't. And then he backtracked and realized of those 100, only about 30 finished well. Absent from the list are people like Moses. Moses didn't drive the last spike well. He disobeyed God. God told him to, to speak to the rock. In a fit of disappointment with the people, he struck the rock and was barred from the promised land. Absent from the list are people like Samson, who was a public success but a private failure, who, who had, a, had a veneer of righteousness, but inside he just nurtured all of these 
sin issues. Absent from the list are all kinds of kings in the Bible who, who did evil things or, or other kinds of kings who, who were what I call yeah, but kings. Yeah, they did good things, but they never completely tore down the idols. Starting well is easy. Driving the first spike is easy. Last spike Christians are rare. This is an issue that hits home for me personally. I don't have time to get into all the intricacies of it, but when I was 17 years of age, through a set of um, divine providential circumstances, um, I I acknowledge the call of God on my life to preach and proclaim uh, his word. And so I I grew up in the traditional black church and the way that worked in the traditional black church, you didn't go to a class or meet with the elders. You met with the pastor and the pastor then sat down and asked you a whole bunch of questions. I can still see my pastor at the time, Pastor Herman Conley sitting in his house and in his living room there. And he's asked me all these questions. And I guess he was pleased with my answer. And uh, the next phase in the traditional black church is they put you up for the trial sermon. And the trial sermon is exactly the way it sounds because if it don't go well, you ain't going to preach or get licensed or whatever. In fact, I went to one of my buddy's trial sermons. It was the worst sermon his preached in the history of humanity. And the pastor got up behind him and said, there's a reason why we call it the trial sermon. He flunked this one. We'll try it one more time and we'll see how it goes. And so I remember August, it was a hot August day in um, 1990. Uh, our, little, our little church didn't have uh, air conditioning. We had these little wooden sticks that had a cardboard thing stapled to it with a picture of Dr. King on one side and an advertisement for a funeral home on the other side. I'm so not joking about that. Anybody? Okay, so that was kind of our AC. It was hot, and I get up and preach the second worst sermon in the history of humanity. And God bless these people. They were either carnal and lied to me, or they were trying to be gracious and kind. But I got a lot of encouragement, and I was licensed to preach the gospel there at 17 years of age. A year later, I'm in Bible college. I finished my freshman year, and I then decide uh, to do an internship with this pastor in the Midwest, a thriving church. And he let me live with him that summer so much excitement. I, I got to hang with him. We did hospital visitations together. I would stay up late in his study, peppering him with questions as it relates to how do you uh, prepare a sermon. I was just a sponge soaking it all in. We, we, we spent hours on lakes and ponds fishing. And again, I'm asking more questions. I even saw the ugly side of church. I'll, I'll never forget that summer. Uh, a young lady comes home from college, pregnant out of wedlock, and I, I watch as some of the mothers wanted to throw her a, a baby shower, and then I watch him get up and him just kind of go off saying, we're not going to support her ungodliness, and I literally see her just kind of slump in her seat, and I, I just see the devastating effects of legalism and what happens in that church, and then I go home, and a couple of weeks later, my dad calls me in my dorm room there, my little Bible college just northeast of Philadelphia, and he says, son, I got bad news, you know that? guy you interned with that pastor well he just got kicked out of his church it was discovered he was having numerous affairs with women in the church about a year later I'm in town and I hit him up and we go and sit down to eat and we're having this conversation I'm not I'm not encountering a broken man I'm just encountering a man who's kind of looking through the rearview mirror and reminiscing about how he had planted that church and how it had grown and his itinerant schedule and all the conferences he was preaching at and him just saying oh I'll get back there and decades later I can tell you him and his wife have gotten divorced and he's still living and he doesn't even claim to follow Jesus Christ he was a first spike individual 
will start. Not well done. Around the same time, I remember listening to a sermon by Chuck Swindoll. He kind of had this zinger of a line. He says, the scary thing about Christianity is you can learn to do it. Just kind of manufacture and white knuckle and you're into performance. But it hasn't really penetrated your heart. In my own way, at that time, I wanted to resolve by God's grace to be a last spike Christian. We're at the start of 2022, and you all, I'm sure, you may not call them resolutions, but maybe you've been doing an internal audit, and maybe there's things you're wanting to get after this year financially, and maybe um, your walk with God or whatever it may be. But I want to encourage us, whatever we do, may we just sit in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, because Paul is pleading with us and showing us what it looks like to be a last spike Christian. To be a person who will hear God say of them, not well start, but well done. As we come to our text, you need to understand the Corinthians are an athletic crowd. Every other year, they held their version of the Olympic Games right there in Corinth. It was called the Isthmian Games. They called it that because geographically speaking, Corinth sits on an isthmus. We understand what an isthmus is. It's a narrow strip of land connecting two uh, greater bodies of land surrounded on either side, on two sides by water. It's an isthmus. And so because of that, every other year, again, their version of the Olympics called the Isthmian Games. The Corinthians loved their athletics. If they were here today, they would be all over uh, ESPN or Fox Sports 1. They would know about Skip Bayless and Stephen A and just the whole crew. They love their sports. Paul now draws on their affinity for sports. And in our text, it is just chock full of kind of sports terminology. In fact, for example, verse 24, he says, uh, do you not know that in a race? Now, he's writing in the original language Greek. The Greek word for race is the word stadion from which we get the English word stadium. Or, or take the word run. It's the Greek word treko from which we get the English word track, this thing that people run around. Our text over and over and over again, it is just filled with athletic terminology. In fact, he says several times in verse 24 that uh, this idea of run. The word run isn't used literally by Paul. It's used figuratively. It, It doesn't so much speak to our actions as it does to our attitudes. It doesn't so much speak to our motion as it does our motive. The word treko used figuratively literally means to give it your all. What kind of person hears God say of them, well done? What kind of person isn't just a first spike Christian, but a last spike Christian? They give it their all. Now, I I grew up um, in a little town on the south side of, of Atlanta. Yeah, I'm from Georgia. Bless the Lord for my Georgia Bulldogs. Pray for us as we take on the kingdom of darkness here in a little over a week. 
And every, every August of every year, me and my brother would beg my dad to walk us down to uh, Duncan Park. In fact, uh, uh, we wanted him to sign us up for Pop Warner football. Nothing gave us greater joy than hitting people in Jesus' name. We loved it. And so we'd walk down Mariona Drive, and I can still see it now, our little, our little home there, Mariona Drive, and we'd walk down there and hang a left onto Rivertown Road and walk about a half mile, and there to the right is Duncan Park, and we'd get there, and there'd be hundreds of little boys there wanting to sign up for Pop Warner football, and, and back then, the, the registration process was pretty elaborate. I mean, you just kind of went from station to station. At one station, they'd see how, uh, how tall you were. Another station, uh, they'd want to see how much you weighed, and another station, you'd have to answer all these medical questions. And then the last station, that's where you paid the registration fee. Now, you need to understand my father is a phenomenal preacher. And you also need to understand he doesn't need one of these to preach from. He would preach to us anywhere and everywhere. In fact, every single year with hundreds of boys surrounding us, checkbook in hand, dad about to pay the registration fee, he would embarrass the living daylights out of us by preaching us a little two-point sermon. He preached it so often, I have it memorized verbatim. He would say, now, son, you need to understand, your mother and I don't have a whole lot of money. Uh, We're on staff with a a nonprofit Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. In fact, we raise support. We we depend on uh, the benevolent provision of God through his people. And, son, you need to understand, this registration fee is pretty expensive, and it's a huge investment for your mother and I that we are more than happy to make. But before I write this check, let's get two things squared away. Number one, if I pay, you stay. In other words, I'm not trying to hear midway through the season that the weather is too hot, the coach is too mean, the practice is too long, the boys hit too hard. No, no, no. If I pay you, and then one year, to solidify his point, he, he took us home, took out the Loritz family dictionary, flipped to the Q section, took out a pair of scissors, and literally cut out the word quit. He would love to boast the word quit doesn't even exist in my house. And secondly, his second point is more problematic. I went through years of therapy trying to get through it. He says, secondly, if I pay, you stay and you play. In other words, sons, God has invested in you certain athletic abilities that do not warrant you sitting on the bench. In other words, sons, I'm not trying to take time out of my busy schedule watching you do what I'm doing, and that's watching the other little boys play. (laughs) Pray for my self-esteem, y'all. What dad was saying is, give it your all. You know, there's a theological fallacy that that none of us says it explicitly, but I think it's an implicit thought of how so many Christians kind of navigate the Christian life. We actually navigate the Christian life as if salvation is cheap. No, no. Salvation is free. But just because it didn't cost you something doesn't mean it didn't cost someone something. The marathon of the Christian life had a registration fee. Ours was paid on a hill called Calvary. For Jesus Christ died the excruciating death of crucifixion. And I believe Jesus has the same mentality my daddy had. Because I've paid, you stay. Don't come talking midway through the race that the mountains are too tall, that the financial situation is too tough, that the marriage is too overwhelming. No, the word quit should not exist in the Christian's vocabulary. And not only that, 
Give it your all. Run through the finish line. Well, what does that look like? Give me something practical. What does that, what does that look like? You know, we've all heard it. The Greek runner was so committed to running as fast as they could that they would literally strip down naked before the race because they didn't want anything to hinder them from going as fast as they could. Sure, they had the right to wear that clothing. They would literally lay down their rights for the bottom line of going as fast as they could. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. Our section actually begins in chapter eight. And in chapter eight, there's division in the body of Christ as our pastor JD has been talking and walking us through. And they are dividing over food that's been offered to idols. One group is saying, yeah, I can eat. Another group is looking down at them and just kind of going, how could you? And here they are experiencing division over an important issue, but a non-essential issue. Paul is saying because our salvation doesn't rest on whether or not you eat food, you need to lay down your rights for the bottom line of the gospel. How do I go all out? My bottom line in life is not my rights over lesser matters. My bottom line is the only thing that matters. It's the gospel. Everything else is negotiable. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, Paul says, that even leads me into uncomfortable places. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I was just even thinking about this this morning. Just last night, my wife and I were at a New Year's Day kind of party celebration. It was a wonderful thing, man. And um, this was was happening um, um, over near Wake Forest University. And we're, we're just out there. And I meet my cousin for the first time. And She's there and she doesn't know Jesus and she's there with her, her lesbian partner and man, we're sitting there and this is just cutting the, against the grain of how I was raised. And I, I'm, just, I'm just ashamed to say it. I grew up in 1970s, 1980s Atlanta and the Christian community there did horrible things as it relates to how they talked about that community. But here I am, and I just sense the Spirit just say, man, engage them, ask questions, love them, not because they're your projects, and not just because it's cool to show interest, but engage them, love them, show grace for the bottom line of the gospel. I want to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want a part of that narrative to be. I've never been so loved and respected by a person who called themselves a Christian. It shattered my preconceptions. And if me feeling a twinge of discomfort at a party cutting against the grain of how I was culturally formed means an eternity in heaven for them, then bring it on. Is this you, friends? Are you going all out? Then says in verse 25, and every athlete who competes in the games, remember he's writing in a language called Greek, hear it now, the Greek word for, for athlete, hear it now. It's the word agonizomai, 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 agonizomai. 
That's the word for athlete, agonizomai. If it sounds faintly familiar to us, it should. It is from that Greek word agonizomai that we get the English word agony or agonize. Don't you see what the Greeks are doing? The Greeks have have married together an athlete and suffering. There's no such thing as a good athlete who doesn't embrace suffering. If you're a basketball player, you run suicides. It's just how you roll. I remember I was, I was hanging out with some football players at Angola State Prison a couple years ago. We were just kind of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to these inmates. And I'm sitting with one of them and we're just sharing a meal, one of these, one of these NFL players. And, and what they're eating is it's, it's smaller portions and it's March. The season is over. I'm like, what's up? Why aren't you going to town on this, on this food? He goes, man, in my contract, I get fined $500 per pound per day for every pound over overweight talk about suffering there's no such thing as an athlete who's accomplished anything of significance who isn't well acquainted with suffering agonizomai and what's true in the natural is true in the spiritual agonizomai is a part of the christian journey We take the agonizomai of life and we use it to display the glory of God. And we understand that the marathon of the Christian life, we will hit the runner's wall. Those who are last spike Christians who run through the finish line, those who push through the pain, It was Walker Percy, that great Southern novelist in 1961, I believe it was, he won the book of the year. And in the press conference, he he was asked the question, why are so many Southern writers such good writers? Walker Percy just said these words, look at them with me. He says, because we lost the war. What is he saying? Being a great writer is not just a matter of giftedness. It is also being well acquainted with failure and with suffering. And out of that well is where the good stuff comes. Think of Maya Angelou. Taught at Wake Forest University for a while. One of the greatest writers. If you've ever read her book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and she tells her story of trauma, you get it. That's what makes you a great writer. It's the agonizomai. Listen, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, when I'm going through stuff in life, the older I get, the less enamored I am with gifted people. I, when I'm going through, I want someone who's been going through to walk with me. I don't need no fresh seminary grad who hadn't been through nothing just interceding on my behalf. God bless seminary grads. I've been there. I want one of these old mothers who've been through some things. They don't, they may not have the MDivs or the PhDs, but they've got camel knees because they've been on their face before Jesus. In the midnight hour, agonizomai.
like you, our family, we've been through agonizomai. Yeah, we have. 2020, 2021. It's a lot of tough stuff. What's interesting is November 2019, I'm pastoring the Bay Area, and in the Bay Area, man, kind of who we looked at as the pastor of pastors is a guy named Gary Godini. He just, he walks with God. He has what my grandmama calls the ghost. Not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Gary sent me a text, November 2019, and he said, man, it's weird. I've, I've been praying for you, and I've just got this image of Jesus pleading on your behalf against Satan. He says, I just want you to fasten your seatbelt. Satan's coming after you. Have a great day. <laughs> what? Not long after that, I'm, I'm on the golf course. Man, I'm tearing it up on the front nine, having just a great round. And then I get a text from David Platt. Don't want to overstate my relationship with David Platt. I'd call him more of a green room buddy than a friend. David Platt has the ghost ghost. I'm tearing it up on the front nine. I'm making the turn. I get a text from Platt just going, man, you've been on my mind. You're about to go through some things. You're about to go through some demonic attack. I may have shot a 38 on the front nine and like a 78 on the back nine. What in the world? Not long after that, my dad is one of the most godly people that I know. He just hits me up and says, son, I've just been burdened for you with Psalm 91. I can't get Psalm 91 out of my head. I've been praying that for you. All right, a couple days later, a good friend of mine who doesn't know my dad calls me up and says, man, I've been burdened for you, Psalm 91. A couple days later, a friend who doesn't know that friend or my dad, man, I've been burdened for you, Psalm 91. Well, by this time, I'm like, I should probably read Psalm 91. <laughs> So I read it, and it just talks about the enemy attacking and God's protection and provision. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it'll not come near you. And then the other shoe drops, and these words come to fruition in 2020. It was just a tough year in the Loritz household. All kinds of things are happening, and I just remember... I'm, you know, I know as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say this. You're supposed to believe about me that I, I jump out of the bed every morning, can't wait, can't wait to meet with Jesus. There was plenty of mornings I had to drag myself and force myself in the midst of deep disappointment with God. Sitting there one morning, And I'm saying to God in so many words, I'm not really feeling you right now. But I'm going to lean in and trust you. He took me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about his journey as a Christian and his own agonizomai, and he says these words beginning in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. 
Here the agonizomai, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Gosh, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? I am not weak. He's made to fall, and I'm not indignant. So I'm going through this stuff, and, you know, some of you guys know about this stuff, and um, it was just hard. So I said, well, maybe this is sacrilegious. Maybe it's blasphemous. I hope it's not. It's coming from a good place. I'm just going to fiddle with Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to change Paul's words and just kind of insert my experience. And I found this to be a very helpful exercise as I'm dealing with agonizomai. So I wrote, look at it with me. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors. My wife and I, Corey, have experienced a miscarriage. We've gone through seasons where our kids made horrible choices. I've been misunderstood constantly by blacks being called a traitor and an Uncle Tom misunderstood by whites who walked out on me mid-sermon every time I preached on race. I've been attacked in the media. I've been betrayed by elders. I've had cancer scares. I watched a once thriving church that I planted and poured my heart into dwindle to a shell of itself. Remind me to tell you the story of the time in which I've had an engine go out on me on an airplane. 757. Boom. And then, <laughs> footnote, then we get to the gate and the, the girl's like, man, this is like the second or third plane I've been on today. It's just not my day and I just got laid off my job yesterday and I'm like, you're the problem, Jonah. I've had an engine gone out on an airplane I was in while on my way to preach the gospel. I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I have felt overwhelming loneliness in my labors. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And that's not even half of it. 
I just remember hearing, hearing my dad. The word quit doesn't exist in our household. I can't see the end of the valley. But God, I'm going to be like David. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through the valley. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. I just need to know that you are with me. You've been there. I didn't have time to get to the third point in the first service, so lucky you. We'll make it quick. Last spike, Christians, excellence, we run through the finish line. We lay down our rights. Gospel's our bottom line. Last spike, Christians, there's agonizomai. To use Collis Huntington's language, 2022 will have some mountains for us. I don't know what they are. But thirdly and finally, last spike, Christians have integrity. Paul says, so I discipline my body and make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, Paul's using athletic terminology. The Greek word for preaching literally means to announce the rules. It was an image of the umpires and referees who would gather together the contestants at each of the Isthmian games. And right before the contest happened, they would announce the rules. That's the word Paul uses for preaching. Now get what he's saying in our context. He says, I don't want to announce the rules of the Christian life over here, but live over here. My sons are here, and they can tell you from the time they were little boys, we'd sit around the dinner table, and I would say, well, what's integrity? And I'd give them a little thumbnail definition for integrity. Here it is. It's the alignment of words with deeds. Integrity is the alignment of words with deeds. It means I do what I say. I know when I need to hang it up as a preacher. It's not when my memory fades, but it's when my wife cannot come to church and listen to me preach. Because who I am in private is so different than who I am in public. I grew up in Atlanta and I grew up an Atlanta Falcons fan, well acquainted with Agonizomai. My dad was, uh, he'd, he'd go speak at chapels a lot and my guy growing up, because we were so horrible as Falcons fans, I, I, was, a, I was a Walter Payton guy. That was just my guy growing up, the Chicago Bears running back sweetness. And let, let me tell you how much I love Walter Payton. I, I loved him so much that I did the unthinkable. I ate Wheaties. Because <laughs> Walter Payton was on the cover of the Wheaties box, and my guy ate Wheaties, so I, I'm eating Wheaties. Wheaties is the, natural, the nastiest cereal known to humanity. It will not be at the Feast of the New Covenant. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> 
But that's my guy. He eats Wheaties, so I eat Wheaties. Well, one day, my dad gets invited to speak at the Bears Chapel. I'm like 9, 10 years old, and he invites me to go with him. Of course, I'm going to see my hero. Sunday morning, dad preaches to the team, the Chicago Bears, and then the chaplain comes up and says, you want to do breakfast with the team? Oh, my gosh. And in the divine providence of God, I am sitting at the same table eating breakfast with my hero, Walter Payton. But what I see disturbs me profoundly because my guy ain't eating Wheaties. He's eating Raisin Bran. I'm 19 years old. My dad raised me with respect, but this thing is gnawing at me. Hey, brother, you're going to have to give me an answer for this. So I said, Mr. Payton, Mr. Payton, I don't mean any disrespect, but I eat Wheaties because you're on the cover of the Wheaties box, and I just assumed you eat Wheaties, and, but you're not eating Wheaties. You're eating Raisin Bran. He got a scowl on his face. He says, oh, kid, I don't eat that stuff. That stuff's horrible. <laughs> and I, I left a bit dejected. I never ate Wheaties again. And it hit me years later that all Wheaties was was a platform to extend his brand. All Wheaties was was a paycheck. I was discouraged because my hero wasn't even buying what he was selling. Last spike Christians eat their Wheaties. They're men and women of integrity. Not perfection. Friends, I hope you know all these character traits are seen in Jesus. He ran through the finish line, laid down his rights, left the comforts of heaven, took on flesh, dwelt among us, The writer of Hebrews says it this way, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and on the cross, he experienced agonizomai. That's why the writers of scriptures would call him a man of sorrows. But he didn't quit. Not only that, he was a man who was an acceptable sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says, for our sins who though he was tempted in all things as we are, hear it, hear the integrity, yet without sin. He's our example. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well done. And I hope that's true of us. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, first Sunday, 2022, Who knows what this year will hold? And I don't stand here like a curmudgeon. I don't wish hardship on anyone this year. I I pray blessings on your people, Lord God. But there are blessings in agonizomai. To quote Collis Huntington, I don't know what mountains are going to await us. But God, we trust you. So give us, Lord God, what we need by your spirit to push through. Steal our resolve when in the midnight hour, agonizomai comes knocking our way. May there just be this thing in us, not gonna quit, not gonna quit, not gonna quit. I I pray that over marriages in this place. I 
pray that, Lord God, as people are suffering. I, I pray against a quitting spirit. And I pray integrity. I, I pray against public successes but private failures. I I pray the alignment of words with deeds. Do it by your gospel and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.